Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. and welcome to the Waste Connections first quarter 2021 earnings conference call. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press the one followed by the four on your telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star zero. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded on Thursday, April 29, 2021. I would now like to turn the conference over to Worthing Chackman, President and CEO. Please go ahead. Terrific. Thank you, Operator, and good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to this conference call to discuss our first quarter 2021 results and provide a detailed outlook for the second quarter. I'm joined this morning by Marianne Whitney, our CFO. As noted in our earnings release, strong solid waste pricing growth, accelerating solid waste volumes, and increased resource recovery values drove better than expected first quarter results and an improving outlook for 2021. These tailwinds, bolstered by strong solid waste pricing retention, drove adjusted EBITDA margin in Q1 up 70 basis points higher than expected and up 80 basis points year over year. As Marianne will discuss shortly, a 210 basis points year over year solid waste margin improvement in Q1 more than offset drags primarily from lower EMP waste activity and stock market-related deferred comp margin swings. Adjusted free cash flow was $290 million in the period, positioning us to comfortably exceed our minimum outlook of $950 million for the full year. Solid waste activity accelerated as we exited the first quarter, with volumes up 2.6% year-over-year in March, in spite of a tough COVID-19 comp, positioning us for double-digit solid waste price plus volume growth in the second quarter. Recovered commodity values also continue to improve. We knew that our differentiated response to the COVID-19 pandemic would leave us well-positioned as local economies reopen. We are encouraged by the improving macro trends and our strong operating and financial performance as we anniversary the onset of the pandemic. COVID-19-related impacts to our business continue to abate, but most importantly, our commitment to and support of our employees and their families are unwavering. Before we get into much more detail, let me turn the call over to Marianne for our forward-looking disclaimer and other housekeeping items. Thank you, Worthing, and good morning. The discussion during today's call includes forward-looking statements made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the U.S. Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995, including forward-looking information within the meaning of applicable Canadian securities laws. Actual results could differ materially from those made in such forward-looking statements due to various risks and uncertainties. Factors that could cause actual results to differ are disclosed both in the cautionary statement included in our April 28th earnings release and in greater detail in Waste Connections filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the Securities Commissions or similar regulatory authorities in Canada. You should not place undue reliance on forward-looking statements, as there may be additional risks of which we are not presently aware or that we currently believe are immaterial which could have an adverse impact on our business. We make no commitment to revise or update any forward-looking statements in order to reflect events or circumstances that may change after today's date. On the call, we will discuss non-GAAP measures such as adjusted EBITDA, adjusted net income attributable to waste connections on both the dollar basis and per diluted share, and adjusted free cash flow. Please refer to our earnings releases for a reconciliation of such non-GAAP measures to the most comparable GAAP measures. Management uses certain non-GAAP measures to evaluate and monitor the ongoing financial performance of our operations. Other companies may calculate these non-GAAP measures differently. I will now turn the call back over to Worthing. Thank you, Marianne. In the first quarter, solid waste pricing and volume growth both exceeded our expectations, collectively up 100 basis points in the period, in spite of the tough year-over-year comparisons from the strong start to 2020 that persisted up until the mid-March of last year, when the onset of the pandemic began to impact our results. Core price in Q1 of 4.5%, 
plus about 30 basis points in fuel and material surcharges, was above our outlook. Our Q1 pricing ranged from 2.7% in our mostly exclusive western region to a range of 4 to 5.5% in our more competitive regions. Our pricing strength continues to reflect the differentiation of our market model and the consistency of our focus on execution and quality of revenue, both as volumes declined during the pandemic and as volumes have recovered. Pricing growth is expected to increase sequentially to above 4.5% in Q2. Reported volume growth in Q1 was 80 basis points better than expected at negative 3.2% due to the faster than expected recovery in activity as local economies reopened. As expected, February volumes were impacted by the severe winter weather affecting operations in many markets, most notably in our southern region. Adjusting for the weather-related impacts and normalizing for the extra leap year day in 2020, Q1 volumes improved sequentially by an estimated 110 basis points from Q4 and accelerated into quarter end. Volumes continue to be strongest in our western region, which was up 3.8% year-over-year in Q1, similar to Q4, while sequential volume improvements were driven mostly in our central and eastern regions on improving trends during the quarter. Solid waste volume growth turned positive in March, up 2.6%, on inflecting landfill volumes, roll-off activity, and commercial revenue, and is expected to exceed 5% in Q2. Looking at year-over-year -year results in the first quarter on a same-store basis, we once again saw sequential improvements in all lines of business from the prior quarter. Commercial collection revenue improved about 200 basis points sequentially to up 1% year-over-year, with March revenue up 5%. Roll-off pulls per day increased sequentially by about 100 basis points to down 3% year-over-year, with revenue per pull up 1%. March pulls were up 4% year-over-year. Landfill tons improved sequentially by 400 basis points in Q1 to down 1% year-over-year due to continued strength in MSW tons up 2%, along with sequential improvement in both C&D and special waste tons. In March, landfill tons were up 5% year-over-year, with MSW and C&D tons each up 8%. Looking at Q1 volumes from recovered commodities, that is, recycled commodities, landfill gas, and renewable energy credits, or RINs, excluding acquisitions, they collectively were up about 55% year-over-year due to higher values for both recycled commodities and RINs, resulting in a margin tailwind in the period of about 100 basis points. Prices for OCC, or old corrugated containers, averaged about $108 per ton in Q1, above the high end of our outlook, and RINs mostly stayed in the range of $225 to $250. And finally, on to EMP waste activity. We reported $24.7 million of EMP waste revenue in the first quarter, in line with Q4 and their expectations. Q1 should be our toughest year-over-year -year comparison for the year with EMP waste revenue down almost 60% in the period. Looking at acquisition activity, year-to-date, we've closed a handful of small tuck-ins in four states. We are encouraged by the cadence of acquisition dialogue and the high quality of potential acquisitions, both of which suggest the potential for another outsized year of such activity. Our pipeline and level of dialogue with privately held companies both feel like record levels for us which is no surprise given the strong recovery in these family-owned businesses, potential seller lineage transition discussions, and tax-driven activity. We remain well-positioned not only for strong organic growth as economies reopen, the potential above-average acquisition activity, but also for a continuing increase in the return of capital to shareholders. To that end, we have already been active in the terms of share buybacks, with almost 1% of outstanding shares repurchased year-to-date, we would expect to maintain our established decade-long practice of double-digit percentage annual per share dividend growth when we undertake our typical review in October. Now I'd like to pass the call to Marianne to review more in-depth the financial highlights of the first quarter and provide a detailed outlook for Q2. I'll then wrap up before heading into Q&A. Thank you, Worthing. In the first quarter, revenue was $1.396 billion, about $26 million above our outlook, due primarily to higher-than-expected solid waste growth 
and recovered commodity values. Revenue on a reported basis was up 44 million or 3.2% year over year in spite of ENT waste activity down almost 35 million. Acquisitions completed since the year ago period contributed about 43.7 million of revenue in the quarter or about 40.5 million net of divestitures. Adjusted EBITDA for Q1 as reconciled in our earnings release was 433.2 million about $18 million and 70 basis points above our outlook at 31% of revenue, up 80 basis points year over year. Underlying solid waste collection, transfer, and disposal margin expanded by 110 basis points, with, as Worthing noted, another 100 basis points benefit from recovered commodities. This combined 210 basis points margin expansion, more than offset an 80 basis points drag from lower ENT waste activity, a 40 basis points impact from stock market-related deferred comp margin swings when comparing stock market performance in the two year-over-year periods, and a 10 basis points margin dilutive impact from acquisitions completed since the year-ago period. We delivered adjusted free cash flow of approximately $290 million, or 20.8% in Q1 while maintaining the outsized working capital cushion we had established as we exited 2020. As such, we are positioned to comfortably exceed our minimum full-year adjusted free cash flow outlook of $950 million that we communicated in February. I will now review our outlook for the second quarter of 2021. Before I do, we'd like to remind everyone once again that actual results may vary significantly based on risks and uncertainties outlined in our safe harbor statement and filings we've made with the SEC and the Securities Commissions or similar regulatory authorities in Canada. We encourage investors to review these factors carefully. Our outlook assumes no significant change in underlying economic trends. It also excludes any impact from additional acquisitions that may close during the remainder of the year and expensing of transaction-related items during the period. Revenue in Q2 is estimated to be approximately $1.49 billion. We expect solid waste price plus volume growth of approximately 10% in Q2, with volume growth of over 5% reflecting the acceleration activity that started in late Q1 and is continuing in April. Recovered commodity values and ENT waste revenue are expected to remain in line with current levels. Adjusted EBITDA in Q2 is estimated to be approximately $468 million, or 31.4% of revenue, up 120 basis points year-over-year. Year. Depreciation and amortization expense for the second quarter is estimated at about 13.5% of revenue, including amortization of intangibles of about $32.6 million, or $0.09 cents per diluted share, net of taxes. Interest expense, net of interest income, is estimated at approximately $42 million. And finally, our effective tax rate in Q2 is estimated to be about 21.5%, subject to some variability. And now let me turn the call back over to Worthing for some final remarks before Q&A. Thank you, Marianne. We're extremely pleased with our start to the year. Strong solid waste pricing growth, accelerating solid waste volumes, and increased resource recovery values show better than expected first quarter results and an improving outlook for 2021. We're well positioned to benefit from supportive factors in the macro environment, including stronger than expected pricing growth and price retention given inflation levels, further improvement in recovered commodity values, increases in housing and infrastructure related activity, plus volume growth from the ongoing reopening of COVID-19 impacted markets. We are already seeing these benefits in the increased activity that began broadly in March, and we anticipate communicating an, an increase to our full-year outlook when we announce Q2 results. Before heading into Q&A, we'd like to recognize and thank Don Slager for his over 40 years of commitment and leadership in this industry. And with that, we appreciate your time today, and I'll now turn this call over to the operator to open the lines up for questions. Operator. Thank you. If you would like to register a question, please press the 1-4 on your telephone. You will hear a three-tone prompt to acknowledge your request. If your question has been answered and you would like to withdraw your registration, please press the 1 followed by the 3. One moment, please, for the first question. <laughs> 
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Our first question comes from Walter Spracklin with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed. Yeah, thanks very much, and uh, thanks for taking my, uh, my question. Uh, good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, so speaking to the quarter trends, I know you mentioned above 5% for Q2. Uh, when you look at your, your, your sequential here uh, in, in the weeks to start the quarter, how would that volume growth of uh, uh, exceeding 5% compare to uh, the quarter-to-date trends that you're seeing right now? Uh, Walter, I'd say that what, what, we're, what we're describing for Q2 is is pretty much in line with what we're seeing, the, the continued improvement we're seeing in April. And you know, what, what I'd say there is if we look at the trends in March and, and you know, really you know, last year, the, the comps really not easing until late March, right? What, what we saw is 2.6% volume in March and you, you go from there and, and you say a full year quarter increase would be over 5% just based on those trends. And so I'd say we're continuing to see the trends improve. April stats include seeing trends where volumes or landfill pulls and uh, landfill volumes and roll-off pulls, which were up mid-single digits in the month of March, we're seeing up mid-double digits in the month of April. Again, in line with how we would think about the whole quarter. Yeah, we're back, Walter. We're back to at landfill volumes above pre-COVID levels, um, and we start seeing mid-teens and high-teens increases in a month, year over year, you see the kind of the snapback as economies reopen. Okay, that's, that's very encouraging, and I, and I, and I find it, uh, so when I look at your outlook and your decision not to increase guidance here, uh, I know, you know, certainly you've only, you only said it a couple months ago, but given how encouraging it looks, and your language around potentially doing that next quarter. My question is, what, what, what's causing you to wait? Um, is it the geographies you serve? I know Canada, uh, sitting here in Toronto, we're still in, in a pretty heavy lockdown. Is that what's keeping you back in terms of, uh, of increasing your guidance, or is there any other factors at play here? No, look, we, we don't believe in changing our guidance uh, every other month. I mean, it's, it's better to see the trends play out in July You'll see more of the economies reopen. Let's not get into a quarter to quarter to quarter type changing of guidance. But clearly, if you look back at where we got at the year, we got at the year up 50 basis points overall in margins. And here we are out of the gate, you know, up 80 basis points just in Q1 and guiding 120 basis points in Q2. So put simply, the 50 basis points of the full year is already in the bag through, <laughs> through mid-year. And so as, as margins increase in the second half, uh, year over year, that'll be additive to the way we guided margins for the full year. And obviously with half the year done and us guiding Q3 on our, on our Q2 call, uh, you'll have plenty enough visibility in the, in the revenue so we don't have to, you know, get into a guessing game around revenue. Yeah, that makes sense. And, I, and so just to confirm, there's no regional disparity that's causing you to, that's being a drag on your results here or causing you any undue concern. Nothing at all, so I think, as you can tell by the tone in the release and the tone on the call. Like if you step back, even the way we guided Q2, we're back above uh, where we were. Last unaffected, COVID unaffected quarter uh, was Q2 of 19. We're looking at second quarter uh, comparisons and adjusted for acquisitions. We're back on a, on a total revenue basis above where we were in Q2 of 19, but with higher margins and that much more cash flow uh, than was generated before. And so the business is, a, as we said before, kind of a totally different business, more profitable, higher cash flows as we exited the pandemic and you're seeing in the Q2 guide. That's great to hear, appreciate the time. Just one other point to elaborate on in terms of the regional differences, I just make the point that if I look at the month of March, 
that all, all regions improved and everyone but for our eastern region actually turned positive and the eastern was only down nominally and that all regions were projected to continue that sequential improvement Q1 to Q2. And we're not going to make a guess here about whether or not COVID-related uh, revenue that has not yet returned ever returns. Obviously, as New York City and some of the major metro areas in Canada, uh, you know, uh, get further into their reopening or eventually get back to reopening again, um, you know, you'll see that be incremental to us. And again, that's why I think in July we're in a much better position to know how that's come back and what the trends look like for uh, for Q3. That's great. Appreciate the added color. Thank you. Our next question comes from Kevin Chang with CIBC. Please proceed. Thanks, thanks, thanks for taking my question, and congrats on, on a good quarter here. Um, maybe if I could t turn to your M&A comment more than in, in Marianne. It sounds like another outsized year. And I'm just wondering incrementally, just, just given all the tax noise in the United States and the potential increase in, in, in the corporate tax rate specifically, just given your tax structure and, and, and you being domiciled in Canada, does that do you think that gives you an incremental advantage on M&A, you know, versus maybe some of your U.S. peers who might who might bear the full burden of that uh, of that potential tax increase? It's not something that gets factored into into valuation. If that's your question, I mean, look, the clearly, if you're if you're a private owner and you're looking to to get ahead of what could become a you know, a, a, a mid to high 50% capital gains rate in some states, um, you're looking to get transactions done prior to year end. Um, and so with valuations at attractive levels, with kind of the, the, the tax uh, acts, so to speak, uh, hanging over, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of dialogue and activity and, and a push prior to year end. And obviously the one thing that, that folks also get concerned about is, is you know areas where you've got market overlaps and obviously you've seen some companies take over a year to get through the doj and so for especially for transactions where we have no market overlap there's a lot higher confidence level in not having that process um you know impede the ability to get it done prior to year end so there are a lot of things at play but our structure um our structures structure does not come into play as we think about acquisitions Okay, that, 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 that's helpful. Um, and then you, know, you, you made a comment as well, just on not trying to guess, you know, you know, which small businesses come back and, and you know, who, who ends up ultimately surviving this, this unprecedented, uh, I guess, environment we find ourselves in. But you've obviously seen a, a pretty strong reopening here, especially, especially in the U.S. Just wondering, as you think about the provisions you've taken for, for credit losses, um, you know, how is that playing out versus maybe what you would have assumed, let's say, you know, not nine months ago in terms of, you know, how these small businesses are coming back, especially as, as government support measures are removed? Are, you know, are, is it surprising to the upside? It, it feels like it might be when I look at maybe the credit provision, the credit loss allowances you took in, in, in the first quarter here. Well, again, I think the credit losses were a lot uh, less than, uh, than feared uh, as the pandemic mm -hmm. started because we were very – proactive um, in ensuring that, um, you know, we weren't building revenue that may not be collected. And so, you know, we haven't really seen anywhere near uh, the magnitude of what credit losses could have been because of way, the way we've, um, we've tightly managed uh, what kind of revenues we are recording and invoicing. Okay, that's helpful. And I mean, just a housekeeping question. You know, I, I you know, saw a nice sequential improvement in, in, in Canadian core price. Just just wondering, you know, is, is that just the timing of when price increases were pushed through, or, or was, is there anything else you would, you would point to there? No, we, we would say that, that Canada, as with all of our regions, have seen very strong pricing retention uh, and you know, that really has exceeded our expectations. And you know, we're certainly you know, mindful of, of the, the lockdown in Canada, but our business has performed remarkably well uh, in spite of that, and um, really no change in how we think about pricing. Uh, but again, Canada, like all of our other regions, delivered a little more price than we would have anticipated. Great. Uh, thank you for taking my question. Our next question comes from Jeff Goldstein with Morgan Stanley. Please proceed. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my questions. 
I was hoping for an update on the environment in some of your more competitive markets. Just given all the dynamics around COVID and the recovery beginning now, are, are you starting to see any less discipline in the market when it comes to contract bids? Um, doesn't appear so based on your results so far, but just anything notable to call out on the competitive landscape. Sure. Uh, you really, as we've said for the past few quarters, we've been impressed by how rational pricing has, has continued to be in spite of the pandemic. And I would say, in fact, on some residential bids, I think people have seen the opportunity to push pricing higher, you know, and, and are disciplined. And so there are, you're seeing, again, rational behavior there. You, you always have your isolated incidents where there, you know, can be markets where it's less so, but I think you know, if you just look at the price that we reported in Q1 and the fact that retention is higher, it's an indication of how rational the markets are. Okay, that makes sense. And then I'm curious if you're seeing any changes to the labor force in terms of retention, given last year at this time, the labor market was pretty soft, but it really kept improving ever since then. So have you seen anything meaningful that's worth calling out or just anything at all notable to mention around the labor force right now? Well, I'd say first and foremost, you know, you, you want to keep who you have, right? Um, and, you know, to that end, uh, turnover improved again sequentially Q4 uh, into Q1. Um, that said, look, as we talk about this growth environment, um, you, you put that growth environment on top of increased seasonal needs uh, for labor in certain markets, for yard waste and, and a typical increase in, in summer activity, um, you know, we are actively hiring, right? Um, we hired more people in the month of March um, than we had since the month, in any month since September of 19. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's being cognizant of, as, as growth is occurring, cognizant of, of hours of service and make sure you're managing that and maintaining you know, work-life balance for our folks. Uh, again, it's the increase in roll-off activity. Um, you know, that's, that's something where as demand continues to increase, you're putting more trucks and more people in trucks um, to, uh, to cover it. Um, so no, it's um, look. Labor is always uh, always an issue. Um, labor uh, availability. Uh, it's going to get more acute. Uh, I think waste management mentioned the same thing. But the important thing is for our companies and, and others is to stay proactive and ahead of that curve. Um, and it's as you know, the, it's not just about what you pay because uh, we were very proactive last year in raising minimum wages to target minimum wages to $15 an hour and and other ancillary benefits and other things that you know, make that economic package attractive. But it's also the culture of a company and most importantly, leadership. Um, and so we want to make sure it's a great place for folks to work uh, and pick us uh, over other alternatives they might have. All right, I appreciate the caller. Our next question comes from Chris Murray with ATD Capital Markets. Please proceed. Thanks, folks. Good morning. Um, maybe turning back to your free cash flow commentary. Uh, in the quarter, the uh, the conversion rate was pretty high, you know, north of 20. And I, and I know we've had this discussion in the past. And I think more than you've you've sort of cautioned when we have these quarters to maybe not get ahead of ourselves. Um, but I'm just starting to think about um, the inputs and whether or not the quality of your revenue has changed um, in any way over the over the last year. Um, and as we get reopening, maybe pick up some tailwinds from EMP and, and recycling, um, whether or not we should be thinking, you know, what used to be maybe 17 to 18% conversions is going to be a bit higher. Well, we'll all start and then, and then toward the, you know, to, your, to your observation or acknowledgement, Chris, that any individual quarter isn't necessarily indicative of the whole year, you know, a reminder of the timing of, of interest and tax payments and why Q1 is always a very strong quarter. Uh, that being said, we, we did emphasize that, that, that working capital cushion that we had talked about being outsized at year end really didn't dissipate, didn't, didn't abate in Q1. And so you know, what that suggests is the strength of the underlying free cash flow. And to Worthing's point about you know, when, we, when we think about the full year and our ability to attain the, the level that we talked about in February, we feel very comfortable talking about that. And again, as, as you know, we talk about conversion percentages of EBITDA. For us to be converting you know, north of 52, 54% or so of, of EBITDA to free cash flow, um, that is a quality that, that 
no other company can attain or has attained. Um, but to your point about is there a different quality of revenue coming out of the pandemic? Um, as I noted earlier, uh, again, um, X acquisitions, uh, we're again back at or above where we were in Q2 of 19 uh, with higher margins and higher free cash flow generations, which shows you there's been a, a little improvement in the quality of revenue and, and, and the profitability and cash flow flowing from that as we've come out of the pandemic. Okay, that's helpful. Um, and then one other question for you. I, I know both um, in Canada and the U.S. there's been some discussion about maybe going back and looking at greenhouse gas emissions, and, and I know that's been changing back and forth um, with regulation, but how would you characterize um, your thoughts around, you know, landfill gas emissions and, and your approach to thinking about what you're doing today and what you might have to do in the future just to, just to address any changes in regulation or any tightening of it? Well, you know, we'd start by saying, of course, this is a highly regulated industry and, you know, typically in incremental regulation benefits you know, well-capitalized companies. And we do a lot of things to make sure that we're, we're performing at or above the standards that are out there. And as you know, we see it as an opportunity to continue utilizing the gas that's generated at our landfills and capturing that, monetizing it. And as we've all discussed in this environment, uh, it's an ideal time to be doing that. But, you know, frankly, we've all been doing that and it's part of how we run our business. And to the extent we can do more landfill gas projects, high BTU gas projects, that's just an incremental opportunity. And, and look, I think us and other companies, um, look, we all uh, try to reduce uh, fugitive uh, you know, emissions coming off the site that don't get captured. And, you know, to that end, we're in, we increase use of synthetic, temporary synthetic caps uh, to, again, uh, reduce the migration of, uh, of gas out of the landfill other than what's being captured. And so, and again, as folks may have read in our ESG report that we put out last year, um, you know, reducing emissions and kind of the release from the landfills is a key priority of ours. All right, folks, thanks for the time. Our next question comes from Tyler Brown with Raymond James. Please proceed. Hey, good morning. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Worthing. So I think both Waste and now you have talked about maybe slightly better pricing out of the gate. I think you mentioned it was retention. I thought you tended to allocate churn towards volume and not price, but I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole here. But what lies in or, or what lines or types of markets are you starting to see this in? Because I don't think it's CPI. That's actually probably a slight negative. So is it really the competitive side and just any thoughts on the types of lines that you're seeing that step up? Right. It's, uh, it's obviously, therefore, it is a competitive market. Um, look, it's not unusual for, for you know, if a location, um, you know, may believe they're going to price or deliver 4% price to put 4.4% price or so in the street and expect some sort of rollbacks um, on the implementation. Uh, for a piece of that price increase. And again, as we said before, price retention is at its highest because mm -hmm. we're not seeing the, the, the amount of rollbacks we've typically seen. Um, and so that's not a churn issue. That's just a retention of price um, being stronger than in prior periods. Yeah, so right. That's a good clarification. So retention is more on rollbacks. Churn is completely different. So that that's right. helpful. Um, okay, so... Uh, Marianne, you obviously do a great job on bridging the margins. I love it. It's very helpful. So how do we think about the commodity uh, benefits for the rest of the year? So I think you got 100 basis points here in Q1, but if you were to baseline prices today, what would that be in Q2, 3, and 4? Because if I'm not mistaken, OCC prices were a little bit wacky last year. I think they actually stepped up in Q2, came down in the back half. That's exactly right, Tyler, and, that, and that's a great observation. That will impact you know, the behavior quarter over quarter or year over year in each quarter. And to your point, if I look at OCC, just starting there, the, it's the toughest comp in Q2. It's actually twice as high. You know, Q1 to 2 last year went from around $55 a ton up to $110 a ton. So toughest comp in Q2 and then steps down over the course of the back half of the year. You know, RIN's not, not quite as volatile, so that'll smooth it a little bit. But if I look just at Q2 and, and you know, where we are, even though recycled commodities and RINs have stepped up some Q1 to Q2, 
I think the impact would be similar in Q2 as it was in Q1. Okay, so 100 basis points in Q2 is embedded in there. And then any thoughts about the back half just based on the current baseline? Sure, so it drops off. It, you know, as, you'll, yeah. as, as you'll recall, we guided to 60 basis point benefit, you know, starting with 80 in Q1. And so what it suggests is at the current baseline, it's a little better than that, but it drops off over the course of the year. Okay, okay, that's help, helpful. And then not to nitpick, but did the leap year last year so was that actually a margin help this quarter? Was that like a 50 basis point help to solid waste margins? Yeah, it was, I think it was 30 to 40, and that was incorporated in our guide, right? Because I think we all knew the leap year comparison was there when we guided in February. Right, okay. Just wanted to make sure I had that. And then the last one here. So, Worthing, it's interesting. I think both you and waste management, and frankly, I've even seen it out of some of my transports, they've had a really slow start to the year on the CapEx side. So I'm curious if you're having problems related to truck production issues with this semiconductor shortage. Basically, do you actually think you'll be able to spend the full 625 this year? Oh, we'll spend it. Um, okay. <laughs> we've already, we've already, the question okay. will be is, um, you know, does the mix shift a little bit? I mean, obviously we've had some opportunities to buy additional uh, pieces of property um, we've already gone in and put additional yellow iron um, uh, commitments in, uh, in really get a head start on 22 this year. We're anticipating some trucks to ship out of this year um, into next year, uh, just because of the, uh, the timing of, uh, of deliveries. Like if you, if someone were to start today and put a new order in, um, uh, chances are you get the chassis in, in early Q4 and you, get, and you get the full unit with the body sometime in Q2 of next year, right? And so clearly the lead times have stretched out, um, but obviously we were ahead of this year's requirements because we got a very early start last year in making our commitments for 21, uh, much like we've already done making our commitments um, for most of 22. Okay, so you'll spend it. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> I appreciate spend it. the time. Yeah, thank you. Our next question comes from Jerry Revick with Goldman Sachs. Please proceed. Hi, this is uh, Adam Hubis on for Jerry today, and uh, congrats on a great quarter. I was wondering uh, if you could help me think about a potential to accelerate landfill gas development and, and put that in context of where you are today on that front. Sure. Um, you know, as we've said um, for a while now, um, you know, we've got a handful of projects uh, that we've been working on for four to five years by now. Um, you know, the first one, or the next one, I should say, of any size, will likely come online in late 22, early 23. Uh, we've got, beyond that one, we've got three or four other ones um, that are within the span of our, of our sustainability report that we put out with our targets that we laid out. And so, you know, I, I think the number of opportunities that we talk about are, you know, four to five in total, that's not too dissimilar to what I heard, you know, coming out of waste management the other day, but you got to remember, we have about a third of the number of sites as they have. Um, and so, no, we, we've got a great opportunity ahead of us. These are, um, these planning cycles take, take time. Sometimes your, your timing, um, the, the launch of a, of a project based on, you know, permitting landfill permit expansion conversations you're having with municipalities. And so it's not clear cut as saying, all right, let's go build one tomorrow and put a shovel in the ground, right? Um, and again, yeah, the economics are attractive at these levels, but you got to remember the economics are attractive at the low of rents over the past couple of years as well. Um, instead of a two or three year payback, maybe it would have been a six or seven year payback, but even a six year payback is, is attractive at the lows that you saw rents hit um, you know, a, a year or two ago. Okay, thank you. That color is really helpful. And then lastly, can you help calibrate me on uh, where commercial, industrial, and residential uh, volumes are uh, versus pre-pandemic levels? Well, as we mentioned, when we look at, at data points like our roll-off poles and our, our landfill tons, we're at or, or about close to, or in some cases exceeding where we were pre-pandemic. So, so they've, they've largely come back uh, you know, to those pre-pandemic levels. 
you know, commercial, probably, you know, not quite the same, uh, a little slower because you don't get that, that real-time movement, uh, but everything's trending positively. Yeah, our most, our most recent full-month uh, data for the commercial sales side, I mean, I think we're running about 140% of budget, um, and so it just gives you a sense of what's happening on the small container side as well. Great. Thanks so much. Our next question comes from Michael Hoffman with Stiefel. Please proceed. Hi, good morning, and thank you for taking the question. So I start out with more of a comment. Uh, you know, I think Worthing, you've been at Connections for 17 years, and in that 17 years, you set a policy. You're going to do guidance at the middle of the year. And to be very clear, you're standing by that policy. Well, we'll confirm that once this call ends, right? You'll you won't hear anything from us. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're going to update it in in our on our Q2 yeah. call. Right. Obviously, people can you know it doesn't take a genius to to knit together what's going on, on the margin side and what's going on, on the revenue exceedance, and we'll have better insight on that. And we'll do one update uh, in in July um, for the balance of the year, which you've done for 17 years. So people yeah. should read through. It's actually typically... been 18 years, but it's been 18 okay. years. But I'll give yeah. you. COVID was, I guess, a non-year, so we'll skip COVID year. <laughs> um, the, and just to you know, help frame this a little bit, typically your first half is 48% of the full year EBITDA and the second half is 52, and based on adding one and two together, you're, you're at 50% of the current guide. So read through as you choose. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to know kind of the, the, the sequencing quarter to quarter this year, just given the, the quirkiness of, uh, of the pandemic and reopenings and things like that. But um, look, I mean, you saw the, the revenue beat relative to their expectations in Q1. Um, you know, if you, if you annualize just that, that's what, about $100 million or so in, in revenue. Uh, we'll see if that still stays the, same, the, the case when we re-guide re in, uh, in July. Um, and obviously, in the margins, as I said before, we've we got 50 basis points up for the full year. We're already at that point by mid-year, um, and so you know there's there's likely margin upside too to how we got it. On inflation, have your vendors been able to push through any of it yet, um, or is this something that probably shows up in the 2022 capital spending? It depends. I mean, on the capital side. You know the the trucks that we had, as I talked earlier about, you know, getting a head start on the on the orders in 2020 for 2021, we had already locked in, um, you know, much of the pricing for the fleet that uh, that was in production this year. Uh, to the extent that we put new orders in after the surcharges uh, got implemented, those would be subject to that. But for the bulk of our capex, uh, at least in the fleet side this year, um, we had the pricing already locked in ahead of that. And in 2018, the industry saw three points of inflation happen real time, and you particularly led the way with an incremental open market pricing. Do you see any need to do that based on inflation issues, or is the fact that your retention so good you're covering it anyway? Well, if you look back, I mean, you know, we, we talked about second half of last year, we, we talked about pricing being kind of 35 to 4% this year with a bias for 4%. And here we are sitting at call it four and a half percent. And so, you know, the way this year is playing out, um, you know, we're already, uh, you know, attaining higher than expected pricing, because in some cases we're also anticipatory of of, uh, of the of some inflationary inflation pressures out there, some likely wage pressures. Because again, we started we had a huge head start on wages last year, the way we pushed up wages and, and other support for the field. And so, no, to the extent that, you know, we continue to see um, an, an increase above and beyond what we have currently anticipated, and we're already anticipating above average wage pressures, um, obviously, you know, it suggests the market um, is bearing it. I mean, look no further than a P&G or, or other consumer product companies that have already telegraphed uh, an 8 or 10% price increase, uh, you know, in their business uh, this year. And so, again, it's you know, four people look at four or four and a half and say, wow, that's so attractive. But you start looking around at the landscape um, and, you know, that, that doesn't look so big anymore. <laughs> um, but um, I also know, look, it's, it, we're also cognizant of the power of volume when it comes to, to you know, margin flow through, right? Um, because 
you can't just look at price and say, hey, you know, can't I don't have an ability to, to recover in our volume. You're seeing the high flow through in the in the recovery. I mean, look no further than our our western region, which as Marianne said, had had positive volume in Q1. You know, you can just look in our at our 10Q and see the 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 region uh, uh, margin performance year over year, and our western region was up over 200 basis points in EBITDA margins. Again, on the lowest price. And so it's always not just about price. Uh, it's about, again, quality of revenue um, and the flow through and the pricing of that flow through uh, on incremental volumes. And just to remind everybody, the lowest price is because a lot of that business is indexed. So it's Correct. leverage. On a lagging basis. Yeah. And so obviously as inflation, um, you know, increases this year, um, you know, you'll, you'll get the higher uh, indexed uh, pricing for next year. And then... Marianne, switching gears to the to the guide for 2Q, um, if I think about the mix between countries on volumes, I, I, are you expecting Canada to turn positive one um, off of a negative in one to Q, and then it would suggest even if it was marginally positive, the U.S. will be nicely positive, like six percent, to get to a five and a half. Sure. So, uh, so what we're expecting, Michael, is sequential improvement in all of our regions and. I tend to think of the the, uh, the more impacted regions being Eastern and Canada, both still lagging the overall reported volumes. Uh, and just you know, off the top of my head, just trying to remember if it actually is positive. Well, it's positive. Canada was positive in March. Yeah, positive in March. So yes, you're right. Positive for the for the full for the full Q2. That would be the expectation. And taking a step back, the strongest sequential improvement we're expecting Q1 to Q2 is actually in those lagging markets. So between the northeast of the U.S. Uh, and also in Canada. Okay, and then back in the market that's doing renewable renewable gases and it's making a big deal about this opportunity in landfill gas. Um, and, and, you know, I'm just curious, you all are developing your own. I, you know, Waste is going to develop its own. I expect the others do too. So, are, you know, are they trying to, to horn in on something here? Is there an opportunity maybe to offload some of the volatility by letting an, an outsider develop it and capture royalties? How, how do you think about all that in the mosaic of developing these projects. Sure. Well, again, you know, as you know, um, landfill gas has been captured uh, for a long time. Um, and, you know, going back uh, in the old days, um, you know, look, gas has been captured. In many cases, uh, you, we may have JV'd already with a, a third party to come in uh, who wanted to build back then this thing called a power plant and generate electricity, right? And so we had a revenue share agreement in place with, with those folks. And those, so we already have the gas in those sites already committed to under contracts. Now, when those contracts expire, we have a chance to reevaluate either, you know, the revenue share or what we want to do with the gas, right? And so, so it's, it, I'm not surprised that the number of opportunities when people talk about what can be done, you know, you're not hearing about, you know, 80 new plants can be built, um, you know, for each company because so many projects have already been committed to. Um, and so it's, it's, it's landfills where you either have existing contracts waning or you've got landfills that are finally generating enough gas that it makes sense to, 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 to do a renewable uh, plant. But, um, it's again. This is not something new. Everyone's got a different portfolio, but obviously, as the, the revenues increase and the value of the royalties in those locations increase, um, so no, it's um, it's not like again. Oh, let's go capture gas uh, because it has value. Um, you know that, that that's already in the system. And and to put this in context, you have a lot of landfill gas operations. You have very few high BTU, and it's the high BTU that is drawing all this attention because that's where the RIN comes. The, the traditional pull it off, low BTU, turn it into electrons, put it into the grid, doesn't have a RIN play in it. That's correct. Right, okay. That's a good, that's a good way to think about it. Right, and, that, and that's the difference that everybody ought to be paying attention. Okay, and the free cash flow upside, how much is going to be from operations and on solid waste versus resources? We haven't broken out the, 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 the different components because, again, even on resource recovery, for instance, we're looking at building a new uh, recycling facility that will break ground on uh, during probably the next few months. And, again, how do you allocate that CapEx to, to just resource recovery, right? 
And so we look at it holistically uh, with regards to where the cash flow is coming from. Okay. Nice start. Thanks. Thank you. As a reminder to register a question, please press the 1-4 on your telephone. Our next question comes from Hamza Mazari with Jeffries. Please proceed. Hey, thanks, guys. This is actually Ryan gunning on for Hamza. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the ESG goals and the investment you highlighted and what might be misunderstood by some aggregators that you think other constituents like ESG fund managers should be more aware of? Sure, happy to do so. Uh, so it, and, and I would say, in general, we're really encouraged by the amount of dialogue and focus there is on, on ESG and the targets that we laid out in October in our updated sustainability report, because we think that as a, you know, not just for us, but as the for the industry as a whole, the, the recognition of the fact that we're doing things like landfill gas projects in the ordinary course of business, and we have been for years, uh, is probably the, the single most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of what landfills do and what we're already incentivized to monetize, to capture. You know, Worthing talked about increasing that capture. Those are all good things for us because they create more value. And so we're, we're, I would say that is one aspect that's, that's probably less appreciated or was and is now more appreciated. So that's one of our goals. Uh, you know, to, to your point, was to increase that biogas recovery by 40%. And these are long-term, you know, 15-year goals. Uh, another was increasing our resource uh, recovery capacity and processing. As Worthing mentioned, you know, we look at those projects, whether it's buying uh, recycling facilities, which we bought a couple of over the past couple of years, to internalize more of our own recycling uh, and, and structure the business to be able to, you know, de-risk that aspect of the business in terms of processing fees. So that's a good thing for us as a company, and we're happy to do have more recycling capacity and provide that service for our customers. So increasing that by 50%, and then also increasing the processing of our leachate on site, where we talked about getting it to 50% on site. We think that's a prudent thing to do. It makes sense uh, financially, environmentally, getting trucks off the road, trucking leachate to third-party facilities, and it de-risks that aspect of the business as we move forward. So those are the types of things we're doing, you know, in conjunction with also on the, the social side and the importance of safety. You know, the, we, we've been focused on all of these things for years. We're happy to outline them and, and talk about continuous improvement in our safety metrics and how you know, we think about uh, the employee engagement with our servant leadership scores and the importance of culture. Again, we're, we're happy to, to describe them as being part of an ESG platform. We really view them as part of running a good business and things that we would be doing regardless of the focus on ESG. Yeah, and we applaud uh, you know, the sell side in, in getting out the message. Um, you know, when you say what's misunderstood the aggregators, probably a lot because aggregators don't talk to us. Got it. Thank you. That's all super helpful. Um, and then switching over to like the EMP business, since it's a different backdrop in energy, since you purchased that business, um, can you just talk about like what uh, mar large margin impact is there and uh, what the synergies of that asset are with the rest of the portfolio? Yeah, it's, look, it's a landfill-based business, right? I mean, we said it from day one. I mean, we're not in liquid side we're not in you know the rig side top side i mean we are a disposal uh, oriented company and so it's we take emp waste at, at several of our traditional msw sites as well and so you know from an operation standpoint it's no different from moving people around between uh, different types of landfills it's no it's no difference um look when emp uh, dropped um last year uh we're able to relocate uh, just reassign and, and, and relocate um, many folks um, from the EMP business to backfill openings uh, within our landfill network. And so, no, it's, um, again, it's, we, we talk about it. It's, it's more just a landfill. Think of it as a special waste stream that, uh, that can swing a little bit more than others. Um, but, no, it's, um, it's right, down, right down the center of the fairway with regards to, to landfill and disposal. Got it. Thank you guys so much. Sure. Our next question comes from Stephanie Yi 
with JP Morgan. Please proceed. Hi, good morning. Um, I just wanted to follow up on that EMP question. Um, I guess your guidance is saying that you're expecting EMP levels to be in line with where things are currently, but I think red counts have rig counts have been moving up. Um, so I just wondering if you're seeing any green shoots in EMP waste activity in your business or you're expecting that to come through kind of maybe in the back half of this year. Yeah, we think it may come through in the back half of the year. I mean, our guys are, are confident about that, but we would never guide that. I'd rather see it happen um, versus, um, versus, you know, provide that in any, any sort of outlook. Um, and so the volumes in the site are actually uh, up, um, but, you know, the, as we saw in the last downturn or the prior downturn, you know, the price per ton uh, is down. Uh, we saw about a, you know, last downturn, if you go back, um, you know, several years ago, I think pricing compressed um, some 15 or 20 percent, um, and we've seen a similar compression on that side um, in, in this latest downturn, um, but then as the rigs continue to come online, as more, more and more volume gets out there, uh, you see both the recovery of price uh, as intersecting with that higher uh, tons coming into the site. And so, you know, we, we expect an improvement in the second half. Again, we would never factor that in our guidance. The, the other important thing, though, is, you know, from a margin standpoint, as, you, if we, as we've guided the business and, and, and operated in this downturn, we actually have brought the business to margins that are at or above uh, reported margins for the full company. And so, you know, our, our folks have been very proactive uh, at managing in this latest cycle. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. Um, and I was just wondering if you're baking into your guidance any costs coming back. I know we've talked about labor, um, but just any routing efficiencies or productivity or cost cuts that you made during the pandemic. Are you baking any of that coming back in the second quarter? And maybe that's being offset by the benefits from recycling and rim prices on the margin front. You know, when we think about, you know, margin expansion in, in the underlying business, we would say that, that some of those costs are, are coming back in. We've, we've had, if you, if you look at Q1, you know, there were so many line items that were down year over year as a percentage that helped to drive that margin expansion. And, you know, th there are some things that, that are coming back in, and, and one that we've talked about is medical expenses, for instance, where we've seen that, that run rate, uh, you know, which de declined, those costs declined pretty dramatically during the pandemic, and we've talked about it for the past few quarters. They continued to come back. So that's one example. You know, I'd say there's some discretionary co costs, travel, meetings, you know, a little bit that's coming back in. And, and we look forward to those costs coming back in, which is why when we talked about communicating our full year expectations, we said we factored in some of those costs coming back in. So we'd expect that to increase over the course of the year. Okay, okay, great. Thank you. Our next question comes from Noah Kay with Oppenheimer. Please proceed. Uh, thanks for taking the questions. You know, Worthing, when you say the M&A pipeline and level of dialogue with privates feel like they're at record levels and we have the context of what M&A has meant for this company uh, in its history, I pay attention. And so I want to spend a little bit more time on that, if you don't mind. Uh, first, kind of to better understand uh, how you might think of the cadence of some of these M&A opportunities uh, getting signed over the course of the year. Does it feel kind of back half weighted? Do you think there'll be some considerations again around potential tax law changes that impact, you know, the timing of when they get done for Q versus one Q. Just what's your sense in terms of cadence for the year? Yeah. I mean, I think the cadence is consistent with what we said in, in February and earlier on the call today, which is, look, it's a back half weighted um, from a closing standpoint, which actually means, you know, more contribution rollover into 2022 versus contributing this year. But again, to your point, um, you know, the, the, the potential tax law changes, especially with regards to cap gains, um, is a driver for folks to, to, to get the queue. Um, and so, again, when I look at the, the, the number of, of opportunities um, that, you know, we continue to, to, to speak with, 
what I see, the conversion of those to, you know, letters of intent in order to get into diligence. Um, again, it's just a, it, it continues to increase month to month to month as you move through the year. Um, but again, you know, look, as we've always said, you know, we'll knock down our typical, you know, 125 to 175 million or so of, of acquired revenue to start chunking it up to 250, 300 or 400. You know, you, you've got to get, you know, a, comp- a handful of companies that are in that, you know, 50 plus million dollar range in order to start chunking it uh, up like that. Um, and so that's the big swing. It's going to be is, you know, how many of those, um, you know, ultimately do get done um, versus um, don't get done. Um, and so, again, the, the, the range of, of likely to possible is probably also as wide as it's ever been. Mm. But your confidence level at this point in some of those chunkiers getting done this year, where would you put it at? Again, <laughs> um, I would never, yeah. again, we always say, never assume we get deals done because many things can happen along the way, right? Um, but clearly, clearly things are quite active. Yeah, maybe a question that's easier to answer. You know, I think uh, we've certainly seen over the past couple of years um, some of the larger deals in the space um, take a longer time uh, in terms of the regulatory uh, process, uh, DOJ reviews, things like that. Um, you know, since you have a little bit of a different market footprint um, than some peers, can you just comment on how you might see that, you know, more or less impacting um, the pace of some of these deals? Yeah, I mean, at. if you look at both the transactions I think you're referring to, those are multi-market, multi-state acquisitions where, you know, given the, who the acquirers were, there were natural overlaps across, you know, a handful of states, right? And so the level of review, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, was, was protracted. And obviously, you put COVID on top of that um, and changes now with the DOJ with change administration, um, you know, things just got dragged out um, in those cases. And so... Mm-hmm. You know what our bread and butter uh, are doing primarily doing again 20 to 40 million uh, revenue transactions episodically you know companies that are north of 100 million um, but if you step back those are those are companies that are primarily you know in singular markets um, and singular geographies and so uh, and in those cases we've not overlapped in those geographies right and so it's it's from a DOJ getting through the DOJ, and we would have controlled uh, their timing of how quickly they'll pick up a file and review it, but hopefully the process to get through the DOJ is not as cumbersome as what I would call these multi-state, larger multi-state com- uh, transactions that our two larger peers did. Okay. And, and, and I guess just a, a last kind of related one around capital allocation flexibility. Uh, you know, we've always thought M&A uh, you know, after the dividend was kind of the first and best use of capital uh, for, for this company. Um, you know, if there's not a meaningful increase in M&A or, or buybacks, uh, you know, the, the leverage is going to be well below um, what it's historically been, uh, which is kind of a credit to, you know, the cash flow performance of the company. Um, so I, I guess in, in general, um, we don't want to hold it necessarily any specific leverage target, but, um, might we see uh, maybe a little bit lower uh, leverage trend than, than usual just to give yourself some flexibility uh, around the uncertainty of, of the timing of some of these deals closing? Is that a fair way to think about it as we look to the back half of the year? No. I mean, as, as we said on the call, we've already repurchased about 1% of our shares this year. Um, and so folks mm-hmm. can do the math on that outlay. Um, when you put that, put the dividend on top of that, and then you look at the the, again, when I said the, the, the range of likely to possible is wide, um, when you go to the yep. possible side, you know, it's, it's over a billion in outlays, right? And so on M&A. And so yep. it, it's just, it's a, it's a hard number to, to peg right now. But the good news is we can do all the above. Um, even if we yep. did what's possible, um, which again, low probability, but what's possible, our leverage still probably doesn't even, you know, touch two and a half times on a net basis. Um, and so, again, we've got great flexibility. Um, we're not trying to take the leverage down near term. Uh, we've deployed a lot of capital, return to capital shareholders already. And, again, the M&A outflows uh, are still ahead of us. And, again, cash is still building into this. Great. Well, thanks very much for the color. Take care, everyone. Thank you. 
Mr. Jackman, there are no further questions at this time. Please continue with your presentation or closing remarks. Okay, well, if there are no further questions, on behalf of our entire management team, we appreciate your listening to and interest in the call today. Mary Ann and Joe Box are available today to answer any direct questions that we did not cover that we're allowed to answer under Reg FD, Reg G, and applicable securities laws in Canada. Thank you again, and we look forward to speaking with you at upcoming investor conferences or on our next earnings call. That does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you for your participation and ask that you please disconnect your line. Have a great day, everyone. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.